The following sermon is from Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City at the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Manhattan. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith. Head to fapc.org and join our email list and be sure to subscribe to FAPC in New York City, our YouTube channel. And now we invite you to breathe deep and lean into the beauty of worship with Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church. Listen now for God's word to you as it echoes to us from the book of Exodus, chapter 1, beginning with the 15th verse. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Chiprah and the other Puah, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him, but if it is a girl, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very strong. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Last week, beginning our study of Exodus, we watched Pharaoh move from uncertainty to fear, from fear to prejudice, and from prejudice to framing public policy, policies that will weave his bias into the fabric of Egyptian society. To advance this agenda, Pharaoh stirs the pot of prejudice with old-fashioned fear-mongering. Who are these people? They look violent, like they could turn on us. Ironically, though, it's the Egyptians who turn on the Hebrews. They're the ones who use force to compel their neighbors to work under miserable conditions. They resort to violence and turn the Israelites into slaves. The first chapter of Exodus sketches a grim picture, and it's not finished. In today's text, Pharaoh, Pharaoh's fears about the Hebrew people reach a, a fever pitch. His, his anxiety clamors for something more, more than slavery, more than the iron fist of oppression. And so Pharaoh formulates a plan, a truly evil plan. Summoning two Hebrew midwives to his throne room, the leader of Egypt makes an exceptionally cruel demand. When Israelite women go into labor, I want you to be ready. If the child's a girl, you can give it to the mother, but if it's a boy, I want you to kill him. And there you have it. We're only 16 verses into Exodus, and the ruler of Egypt has called for genocide. The plot of Exodus wastes no time, plunging us into a moral abyss. Why so fast? Can, can a society really lose its ethical bearings this quickly? Scripture nods. 
The good book harbors no illusions about the human capacity for evil. Neither should we. Pharaoh has too many modern analogs, Stalin and, and Hitler and Pol Pot. Ancient Egypt has too many contemporary parallels, Syria and Myanmar and Darfur. In this country, we cannot forget the brutal treatment of Native Americans. We must remember with the deepest of shame, slavery, Jim Crow laws, and lynchings. In these events, History's most oppressive chapters follow a, a grim pattern, a demonic scheme, Pharaoh's playbook. This script, the script written by Egypt's ruler and followed by scores of history's worst despots, moves along a simple but terrible arc. It starts with scapegoating, blaming some minority for society's troubles, and, and then when fear and anger have peaked, it proposes a foul and violent final solution. Exodus tracks this chilling progression. Today we read, as two enslaved women, Shipra and Pua, stand in Egypt's throne room, they stand before a ruler who wields supreme power. Pharaoh was no mere king. He, he was said to be a divine being. He was, the Egyptians believed, the earthly manifestation of a god. Oiled up and covered in gold bangles, this ancient bully peers at the two slaves standing before him and coolly orders them to start killing Hebrew baby boys. He doesn't need to say, or else. What choice do they have? They have no power. I've been hearing that a lot lately. A person will comment on some messed up part of the world and then they will sigh. I, I wish I could change it, but I have no power. I, I get letters in the mail that, that go like this. Pastor, why don't you do something? Don't you see this thing that's so terribly wrong? Pastor, why don't you use your power? Why don't you change the world? I, I find these appeals both flattering and perplexing. <laughs> Flattering because it's sort of nice to learn that there are still some who believe pastors hold sway with political elites. The reality, I'm afraid, is far less glamorous. Yes, I write letters. Yes, I work with other clergy to leverage our voices and call for reforms that make faithful sense. But at the end of the day, I often feel exactly like those who, want, who write to me. I, I too can feel powerless when confronted by the world's biggest problems. I too am searching for someone, some magical someone who can wave a wand and bring about change. In the face of an attitude like mine, today's text rolls its eyes. Exodus has no patience for those who complain that they have no power, those who are waiting around for someone else to make change happen. Determined to, to jumpstart our hearts, Exodus huffs. Really? You think you have no power? And, and then the good book calls us into Egypt's throne room. Hovering there, we see exactly what we expect to see. An abusive ruler thundering away at a couple of helpless, powerless slaves. Look again, pleads Exodus. Exodus. 
pressing our nose to the glass. Look closer. What do you see? And then, as the two midwives come into focus, Exodus whispers, God's power is not like Pharaoh's power. In fact, sometimes God's power doesn't look like power at all. Our daughter, Isabella, was born at Seton Hospital in Austin, Texas. I want to make that clear in case Izzy ever decides to run for president. A anyway, my wife, Amy, decided that she wanted a natural birth. No meds, no doctor. She wanted to labor in, a, in the hospital in case there were any complications, but she wanted a midwife in the room with us. Now, as fate would have it, our midwife the midwife who helped design our birth plan, the midwife who was prepared to coach us through this ordeal, was out of town when Amy went into labor. So we were met at the hospital by the on-call midwife. Walking into the room, our substitute midwife was an unassuming five-foot-one. She had a long, single braid of hair and a quiet voice. After greeting us and taking Amy's pulse, she retired to the corner of the room where she sat in a rocking chair and began to knit. Calm, cool, and collected person that I am, I turned to my wife and mouthed, some coach. I was so wrong. I was wrong about our substitute midwife, and I was wrong about other stuff that day, too. Oh, I had good intentions. My, my goal was to move us from step one, wife laboring in pain, to step two, driving away from the hospital with a happy child. But I was flummoxed. In a very male way, I was flummoxed. What power did I have over this birth, this labor? What, what levers could I throw? I didn't know what to do, so, so I paced. I'd brought to the room with me, at some friend's suggestion, a, a, a small jar of orange-scented essential oil. Uh, one drop of this oil on a light bulb could perfume a room. Not knowing what else to do, I fluttered back and forth between every light bulb in that sterile space, emptying my little bottle. As I fretted and dispensed incense, Nancy, our substitute, substitute midwife smiled and knitted and slowly slowly her calm got my attention you know this uh, this midwife she doesn't seem worried and she does this all the time gradually as the aroma of oranges faded our substitute midwife's composure began to infuse the room what do you know? She was coaching us. Eventually, I stopped my fluttering and stood next to Amy, who was amazing and also pretty darn calm. And an hour or so later, Izzy was born. It was such a powerful moment. Powerful in a way Pharaoh could never recognize. For a god, he turns out to be pretty darn oblivious. The good book agrees. Look closely at the second meeting between Pharaoh and the two midwives. 
Once again, the tyrant summons Shipra and Pua, women whose Hebrew names mean lovely and little lass. They return to Pharaoh's throne room and they do not look at all intimidated. One of them, Pua, I think, the little lass with the long ponytail pulls out her knitting. In the face of their calm, Pharaoh rages. What the heck is the matter with you? I told you to butcher baby boys. I've been getting reports. It isn't happening. Are you some kind of stupid? Do you know who I am? I am Pharaoh. You are standing in the presence of a god. Are you, are you paying attention? I am ordering you to implement my plan. As this puny god throws his temper tantrum, the midwives remain remarkably chill. <laughs> they smile. It doesn't say that in the text, but I'm sure it's true. It's got to be true because the next thing that happens is, well, sort of funny. The midwives flatter Pharaoh. They, they fan his insecurities. They use Pharaoh's own prejudices against him. Oof, it's, it's a hard thing, you ask. You know how these Hebrews are. You've said it yourself. Their women are not like Egyptian women. These Hebrew ladies are some kind of tough. They're brutes. They have their babies while stirring oatmeal for breakfast. Before we can even show up, they've delivered their children and, and are already back at work. I'm in awe of lovely and little ass. Like judo wrestlers, the midwives let, Hebrew, let Pharaoh charge forward, clinging to an irrational prejudice that leaves him unbalanced. A and then they assist him in stumbling to a silly conclusion. Th they smile and calmly tell this God-man tyrant that he has issued an impossible command. You're absolutely right, Pharaoh. The Hebrews are just too darn tough. We, we cannot carry out your orders. And with that, they return to knitting. This past week, I wrote to Dawn, a doula in our congregation. I sent Dawn today's text, and I asked if she might share any reflections that came to mind. This is how she replied. Reading this passage, I feel pride, and I think of all the badass women I know who are protectors of birth, of life, of women, of babies, of families. Preach on, sister. Shipra and Pua are protectors. They are champions. They refuse to do the bidding of evil. Instead, they calmly and powerfully keep delivering life. And by example, they calmly and powerfully call us to do the same. Go out into the world and be a midwife for God. And may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord be kind and gracious unto you. May the Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. Amen.